0: Good morning, everybody. So good to see some uh, new faces or faces we haven't seen in a while. Things are uh, warming up a bit. That's good. So good to have you here with us, whether you've been away for a while or whether you've been with us all along. We're continuing our series on transformation learning to live in the kingdom of God. As we've enrolled in the School of the Messiah to learn how Jesus would live if he were me, if he were you. What does that look like? And we've talked about a lot of uh, different things along the way here. But the last few weeks we've been thinking about Brett McCracken's uh, wisdom pyramid as he calls it built on the analogy of uh, the food pyramid, you know, so that the base of the pyramid is the the widest part, and that suggests that this is what we need the most of. Uh, In the food pyramid, it's usually either uh, breads and grains or it's uh, fruits and vegetables, depending on whose chart you see. Uh, But for the wisdom pyramid, it's... The Bible, it is God's revealed word, his speaking to us that we need in uh, primary form or basic form to all uh, other wisdom. And then we've talked about the church as the pillar and the ground of the truth. We talked last week about uh, nature and beauty, not beauty quite so much, but uh, uh, more on nature as God's revelation in creation. Today what I'd like to do is pick up the rest of this pyramid. So let's talk about books and the internet and social media a little bit. Uh, That's a lot to do here, but uh, let's give it a try. So last week we had Thesis 11, that we can improve our overall spiritual health by observing and meditating on the natural world. Now we want to think about these last few elements here. And and let's start off by thinking a little bit about truth and listening. James 1, 19 and 20. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And then Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Well, let's reflect a bit on uh, listening. Listening is uh, a practice that, it seems to me, is in relatively short supply in our culture. So, uh, let's... uh, spend a little time with this. Listening, obviously, is more than hearing, right? This uh, this guy is hearing. I mean, what choice does he have, right? Uh, he's hearing, but he's not listening. And uh, And he's making a point of that. She she is making a point uh, uh, quite aggressively that she's not being listened to, right? And he's making the point uh, passive aggressively that he isn't going to listen. Well, that uh, marriage is not going very far, I would predict. Listening is more than just hearing. What is it? Well, listening is paying attention, huh? It's what Jesus talked about when he, when he said frequently after he would do some teaching, he would say, let the one who has ears to hear, hear. And We would say, let the one who has ears to hear, listen. Because that's the point he's making. You can hear but not listen. So listening is paying attention to what is being said and paying attention to the person who is speaking. As I reflect on that, I think, you know, listening is a kind of gift that we give to each other, isn't it? Listening is a gift because it says... I think you have something to say that is worthwhile. I think I think you are a person who has those qualities and it would be good for me to hear what you to listen to what you have to say even if I may disagree with you on some things but I'm going to give you this gift of attending to what you say. A gift we give to others. <clears throat> and then listening is, is also an effort to understand other people. In contrast, uh, I, I suggest, because we just see so much of this in our day, Listening is an effort to understand versus a desire to win. So much of our conversation and interaction these days is a fight. It's a debate. It's a win-lose game. There's very little win-win in the way that we relate to one another culturally. But listening, this gift we give to others, is an effort to understand them with the assumption that there's some value in understanding what they have to say and who they are. So I don't go into real conversation, which is speaking and listening. I don't go into real conversation simply out of a desire to win A debate, and you you can tell the difference, can't you, when you're when you're talking with someone whose main concern is to win, Uh, because because often you realize that they are not they're not listening at all. Even if they're hearing what you say, you can often see it in their eyes that what they're really doing is either looking for something that they can do a gotcha, or they're waiting for you to take a breath so that they can start up with their reply. They already know what their reply is. What you're speaking to them makes absolutely no difference to what their reply is going to be because they're in debate mode. They're looking to win. And how does that make you feel? I mean, you, you can feel that, right, when that's happening? I'd say listening is also a desire to learn versus uh, merely a desire to uh, defend. See, sometimes when when people get into discussions, especially about things that they disagree on, uh, one, there's the desire to win, but, but there's also this desire sometimes uh, to defend what I already think I know or believe. A- and that's, that's the primary reason I'm, I'm engaged in the conversation. It's, it's a defensive move. It's very focused on me, rather than saying, I want to try to learn something. I have a feeling that you have some views that are different from mine, but, but I respect you enough to think that, that there's some things I can learn in this conversation if I will really listen. But see, if my, if my primary concern is simply to defend what I think I already know, then learning doesn't take place. And listening suffers dramatically. So what does James say? He says, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Culturally, we, we tend to reverse that, right? We tend to be slow to listen and very quick to speak. And, and that sabotages healthy communication. It's made worse, so we'll talk about this in, minutes, in, a, in a few minutes here, but, but it's made worse by the speed of communications today. You know, the, the Internet and social media is not geared to good listening. It's geared to fast speaking with all kinds of disaster that comes with that. I mean, you, you probably are sufficiently aware of that that I don't need to tell you. Maybe you know it better than I do. But read almost any blog and then read the responses. And one thing is very clear is there's an awful lot of people that aren't listening. So, as, as followers of Jesus, as people who are trying to access truth, understanding the truth is a, is a significant piece in this whole transformation process. We need to have truth. We need to be people of truth. That means we need to be people who listen Who are quick to listen and slow to speak because if you reverse that and you're slow to listen but you're quick to speak, almost inevitably the result of that is anger and that's what James warns us against, right? So we need good listening and uh, particularly this morning we're thinking about listening in two areas, we're thinking about listening in the area of books and and then internet and social media. So I want to talk a bit about books here. Uh, My life, to a great extent, has revolved around books, (laughs) for better or for worse, but uh, uh, that has been a lot of my life. But in in our present climate, I think, books are just so important. And I admit I'm partial on that, but it, it, it appears to me that books are so important because books help us to think well. Why is that? Well, in part, it's because books help us to slow down. In a culture that is quick to speak and slow to listen, books slow you down. I mean, mean a good book takes an author how long to produce? Minimally, months. Months. And it can take years. So the speaking that comes to us in the books is slower, for sure, right? And for me to listen well to a book, now maybe it's a a light novel. I I like to read mystery novels. That's one of my change of pace ways of reading. I like to read mystery novels and some of them you have to go kind of slowly because they're, they're really intricate and others are kind of fluffy and they're just, they're just for fun, right? So you can read them faster. But, they, but even there, they slow you down compared to some of the other speedy ways of acquiring information. And that's helpful to be slowed down. The slowing down helps us to make connections. Uh, in a couple ways. It helps us to connect thoughts. It actually helps our brains to think logically assuming that the author you know wasn't totally irrational in what he wrote and most times they're not. So the slowing down helps us to connect an argument to make sense of Thoughts connecting over the the time of an argument, a discussion. We live in a world of such rapid and disconnected information that it's actually harming our brains. Too much, too quickly, disconnected. I mean, think about... Think about 15 minutes with KYW. Think about the whiplash. 30-second sound bites. You jump from Afghanistan to the stock market futures to the weather to a mass shooting, to Philadelphia politics every 30 seconds? Are you kidding me? How can you make any meaningful sense of a world that comes at you that quickly? The answer is you can't. And so you train yourself or you're being trained to see the world as a random chaotic place to sense that that reasoning and thinking is about disconnected realities well books for the most part there are some books that don't but for the most part books create a world that has a certain sense and meaning to it i guess that's especially why i like mystery novels right i I like to see the pieces fitting together So books help us connect. They help us connect, though, not just pieces of a discussion or a conversation, but they help us connect with people. In this case, connecting with an author. I have to spend time with this person uh, over, depending how fast you read, it can be days, it can be can be weeks. It might even be months if it's a really long book and an important book. Although if you stretch it out too long, you lose that sense of connectedness, right? You always have to be going back to, what was it he said about that? Although even that's not a bad exercise. I saw this interesting quote by uh, C. S. Lewis this uh, week, and Lewis was a, you know, he was a professor of medieval literature at Cambridge, and uh, he had such a sense of, of what good literature meant. And <clears throat> I like this. He said, the first demand of any work of art, we could say any book, huh? that any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. I like that. There is no good asking first whether the work before you deserves such a surrender, for until you have surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. That's that's one of the reasons I'm careful not to judge a book too quickly. Because I realize I need to make this surrender to say, all right, I'm coming on the assumption that this author has something important or significant or interesting to say and until I work with that assumption, I make that surrender that Lewis talks about and give it some time, only if I make the surrender do I get to a place where ultimately I may say, wow, that was, that's the best book I've read this year or that's the worst book I've read this year. And maybe even getting part way through the book and deciding I'm not going to finish this book. Uh, but I have to make that surrender first. Now, I really, I really like books that you read the first sentence and you're hooked, right? That's the mark of a good author, but, but not every book is like that, including some books that are really worthwhile reading. So you can't give up too quickly, folks, but uh, But this idea of of surrendering, right, Uh, because there's something to be gained here in sticking with an author and really trying to get inside his head. Good communication there. So, books help us to think well. They also work against provincialism. you know what a provincial is? He, he's somebody from the sticks. Somebody that doesn't get out too much. And uh, I love this New Yorker uh, spoof. Uh, have you seen these kind of maps? I've seen them actually made to put up on a wall, really large, with much more detail than this. But this is a great spoof on New Yorkers by the New Yorker magazine. And, and it's an illustration of provincialism. Why? Well, you see this map from the perspective of New York City. You're a New Yorker, right? So, wow, New York, there's 10th Avenue, and there's buildings, and there's people, and there's vehicles. It's a happening place, right? And then there's the Hudson River, and then there's Joysey, and there's nothing in New Jersey. And beyond that is the whole of the continental continental United States. And what is there? There's a couple mountains. You don't even have the Mississippi River. Uh, There's a couple cities, a state or two. That's the whole rest of the country, right? And then Canada on the right and Mexico on the left, they're totally empty. Well, it's a great spoof, right, on provincialism. If you're a New Yorker and... And the reason it's funny is that there's a measure of truth in it, if you know New Yorkers. But but the idea is that we tend to see things simply from our own perspective, right? We are the center of our universe, and the advantage of books is that they can pull us out of that provincialism and help us to look at life more broadly, to look at the world more broadly. One of my first uh, really telling experiences with this was, uh, I guess it was in the 70s. Uh, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, as you know, uh, which means, you know, I'm in my 50s now. <laughs> just just checking your math there, friends. Uh, but I grew up in the 50s and 60s. Television was relatively new at that point, and it, it was... Uh, it was quite stereotyped in terms of what fare you got. It is still today, I think. But uh, one, of, one of the major things that you got in the 50s and 60s was the, the classic TV western, which was two basic styles, I think. One form was uh, the, the good lawman versus the, the bad outlaw. And, of course, the good lawman, after various struggles, would always win. Uh, the Lone Ranger would always ride off victoriously on his horse. Uh, Wyatt Earp would always uh, gun down the, the bad guys. Uh, Pancho and Sisku would always come out somehow on the right side of things. So that was one type. The other type, of course, was the, the, uh, the innocent westward traveling settler besieged by the savage Indians. And uh, you circle the wagons and you fight off the savages as best you can uh, because truth is on your side, right? And, uh, And if you couldn't quite handle them, then at the right time the cavalry would come in with the, you know, the flag flying, and, and they would settle the issue, in any case, one way or another, the savages would be justly trounced, and, uh, and the westward expansion of the United States would be saved again. So I grew up with that. I <clears> was <throat> a kid, never thought much about it, you know, we had those slogans about the winning of the West, and... Uh, We won, so, I mean, what's the big deal? But then in the, maybe in the late 60s, but certainly in the 70s, some books started to come out that told a different story. Uh, The book, uh, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Or uh, the book, uh, Custer Died for Your Sins. These were books written by Native Americans, the uh, the Indians, right? Uh, the guys that, that always got trounced in the Western, justly so, right? Well, you read Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee and you say, there's a whole different story about how we gained the Western territories. and it, it isn't pretty. And you know what? This is even more frightening. It may be true. It, it has the ring of truth about it. You can often tell a, a good book, especially a historical book, by the number and the quality of the footnotes. It means it's been well-researched. Well, that's what books can do for you. See, they can take you out of your provincialism, your narrowness, and, and force you to say, you know, the world's a big and complicated place, and maybe the way I've been looking at it is not the only way. And maybe it's not, this is where it gets shaking, see, maybe it's not even the right way. But by reading books and reading it with a certain surrender, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you raise that possibility for yourself. And sometimes it's very painful. But, see, truth sometimes is painful. You shouldn't shy away from the truth just because it's painful. More recently, uh, in this past year, our elders have uh, read a book together by Jamar Tisby, an African-American, called The Color of Compromise. And it is, it's a book from an African-American perspective, which is healthy for us to get, right, uh, about the course of racism over 400 years in, in our country. And again, it's, it's a painful book to read, friends. But the more you read of it, you got to say to yourself, but is this true? even though it's not comfortable, is it true? And, uh, and when that happens, and you wrestle with that question, and you say, well, this, this does sound like at least a lot of this is true, then once again, you're drawn out of yourself. See, Lewis says, get yourself out of the way. <laughs> and I need to do that. And you need to do that. Because I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not even the center of Satterton. Oh, maybe this is the center of Satterton. I, it's up on the hill, so maybe it is. But no, it's not. And I'm certainly not the center. Books have that great advantage to help us to do that. And with that, then, they teach us humility. It's one of the great benefits <clears throat> In books, you get a chance to mingle with some of the really great minds out there. Which is why, you know, you don't want to just read frivolous mystery novels. You want to read some good books. You encounter some really great minds. It's humbling. I used to have a colleague out at uh, Trinity Seminary in Chicago who was, I think he, if he didn't have a photographic memory, he had close to it. Because he could just read stuff and it stuck with him. Where I, I would have to take notes. And two months later, I couldn't remember my notes. So I go back to my notes. I think, how did I get that out of the book? You know? It's, so compared to some of these guys, I would come home and say to Sharon, uh, re- referencing this guy, you know, I'm really glad he's on our side. Because he could, he could wreak such devastation if he were turned against the faith very humbling to to be around people like that but hum- humility's good right James says he gives more grace therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and humility itself is a grace that God gives you and it's one of the gifts of reading good books you're humbled because you learn things you didn't know before and, and you become more aware that the world is bigger and more complex, perhaps, than you thought, and you get more in touch with other people, and it's good stuff, okay? Now, you might say, well, I don't know what to read. Well, that's, that's fair enough, uh, but there's lots of ways to get at that, and there's lots of people that can help you if you just start to, to ask, if you, want to say, if you say, well, you know, I'd like to read two really good books every year. To strengthen my faith. That's something. We'd help you with that easily. But you have to have that desire. See? You have to want to grow in truth in this way. All right. Let's talk quickly about the internet and social media. Brett McCracken puts it it at the top of the pyramid. If you think about the food pyramid, what's at the top? Candy? And my favorite, donuts, (laughs) yeah. At the top of the food pyramid is 98% of the stuff that you get when you go to Shady Maple. (laughs) They have a little bit of fruit, right? Just so you don't feel as guilty. You can, I'll take a spoonful of fruit, and now for the cinnamon buns. Yeah, yeah. So the stuff at the top is the stuff you might like, but very much of it is going to get you sick. And so we're in this day of the internet and social media. It's a day of the good, the bad, and the ugly the greatest spaghetti western of all times the good, the bad and the ugly how about availability good and bad, right? missiologists tell us that the fastest growing church in the world today is where? Iran can you believe that? As closed as that country is, church is exploding. Why is it exploding? Well, in part, it's because the internet has made Christian programming available in a closed country. And so you get these little house church pop, churches popping up all over the place, and they're getting teaching off the internet. So availability can be a great thing. And it can be bad and it can be ugly, too, right? Because think about the availability of pornography on the same Internet that is delivering Christian programming to Iran. Think about that. It's my understanding that many of the advances in Internet technology were fueled by a desire to make pornography available more quickly. So that's pretty bad, huh? But that's our world. Now, what that that suggests is that we need to be very careful with this medium of information. There's a ton of information out there There's a ton of tasty morsels at the smorgasbord. But you better not try to sample them all. What about democratization? Democracy is government by the people, huh? And... And the internet is marked by uh, this massive leveling where anybody can get up and put materials up for other people to read. Uh, you don't have to be... Uh, I mean, if, if you want to write a significant book in my field, in biblical studies, uh, the old way, and, and still the way for a lot for A lot. If if you want to get with a good press where you'll get good visibility and be recognized, you want to go with Cambridge Press or uh, or Zondervan or Erdman's or something like that. There's a whole long process, and and I couldn't just say to Erdman's, hey, you know, I've got a book that I'd like you to publish, and. They would say, well, good luck with that. I would have to go through, I'd have to contact some of my friends who are already publishing and say, hey, you know, this is what I'm thinking of doing or here's a sample of what I'm working on. Would you be willing to be a go-between? and, rec-? You know, there's there's an elitism about the publishing world. But with the Internet, it's not there. I mean... You you could go on the internet today and propose a reworking of Einstein's theory of general and special relativity. Dick, you could do that this afternoon, right? Oh, so it's already in that book. I didn't realize that. They didn't like it. No, well, that's the, that's the elitism problem. But you could go on the internet and do that, Dick. And uh, that that's the leveling, right? That's the democratization. And there's an, a, there's a certain value to that that we don't just have to listen to elites. We can listen to ordinary people like you and me. But once again, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly. And the ugly side of it is that that a certain kind of cynicism develops in which people become suspicious of any sort of expertise. And and so we, we can have really bright, studied, qualified people trying to help us make progress in all kinds of areas and other people who have listened to the latest conspiracy theory who who get the same playing field and then the rest of us are saying, well, what are we to make of this? So, once again, there's good and there's bad about all of this. And then there's the stuff of mistakes and flat-out lies. Part of that is a reflection of the speed of the internet, and the the speed has some good things about it, but it has a lot of problems as well. So think about how in the last year or two, we've had some major news sources like the New York Times have to come out and apologize for producing news stories that turned out not to be news. And we can be cynical and say, well, those people, they just wanted to lie or whatever. But more likely, what happened was that there's such a pressure in an Internet world to be be near instantaneous with the news that people make bad judgments. They don't check sources the way they should because they don't feel they have time. The next paper or the next news source is going to get the scoop on them, so they're driving for that, so they make mistakes. And yes, the ugly part is that there's lots of liars out there. Including, I might say, unfortunately, a lot of Christians. Who for one reason or another have trouble telling the truth. So that's the world that we find ourselves in with the internet and with social media and uh, we could say more about that but but maybe that suffices. I just want to think about a few guide rails. Guide rails are good things especially in dangerous territory and uh, for me a few guide rails in this area of internet and social media uh, are helpful. One is that we use internet and social media with purpose. <clears throat> There's a strong temptation, especially if you're bored, to go on the internet and just click randomly. That, that's not going to do you much good, friends. In fact, it's likely to really harm you. So it's better if you're bored to read a book. (laughs) But if you have a purpose in going to the Internet, then go and use it with purpose. But that, that entails, then, a certain limitation to our use. It's easy, just like at the smorgasbord, to spend all your time with the pastries. And too many Christians are spending their time with Internet and with social media and the other food groups of truth, which are more fundamental and important, are being neglected. Are you one of those people? Use with purpose, use with caution. I am appalled by how naive Christians have become in believing stuff off the internet. I really, I'm appalled by it. We are supposed to be people of spirit-filled wisdom and discernment. And, And I find Christians believing stuff that, leaves me shaking my head uh, how how many evangelical christians got thoroughly snookered by the qanon conspiracy theories and and some of them still believing it you know Conspiracy theories are, let's say, almost, almost never true. So it's right, when you hear a conspiracy-type theory, to start with suspicion. Start with suspicion. Be cynical about the truthfulness of it. And fact-check. There's a whole bunch of websites that are focused specifically on fact-checking various types of claims. All I have to do is go on and Google fact-checking and you'll get a whole list of them in different areas. You know, medical stuff, political stuff. So if you hear some Idea on the internet that your first response is, oh, that's ridiculous. No, that, that couldn't be true. Okay, well, go with that. <laughs> go with that and check very carefully before you get caught up in foolishness, in lies. I like Proverbs 14, right? Only simpletons believe everything they're told. The prudent carefully consider their steps. And the last one we'll mention here is this. Participate with charity. I know some folks, I know some Christian folks that spend a lot of time on the internet And the bottom line for what it does for them is it makes them angry. That's the bottom line. Well, what do we say to that? Here's what I'd say get off the internet. If you can't participate with charity, charity is the old-fashioned word for love, right? If you can't participate in an internet chat or a Facebook chat or whatever it is, if you cannot participate with charity, remember our definition for love we've used a number of times? Doll for anybody who remembers the definition. I don't have one with me, so that saves me that problem, right? Uh, love is seeking God's best for the other person. If you can't participate that way, then don't participate. That's not bad. The world will still turn without you uh, being on there. Participate with charity. So, thesis, chapter, uh, thesis number 12, right? Pay attention to what you're feeding on, my friends. You are what you eat. That's true to a certain extent with the food pyramid. Boy, it's really true with regard to the wisdom pyramid. Watch what you eat. Too many of us as believers are not being at all careful and it's hurting our spiritual health And it's defeating our transformation into the image of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this morning together. Grateful for the reminder that you are the God of truth. And that you grow us by truth. You renew our minds and our hearts, by instructing us in the way that the, the world really is, instructing us about who we are and who you are. Lord, we want to grow that way, but uh, this morning's a reminder to us that it's, it's dangerous out there and, and truth can be hard to come by if we're not careful. So may we give ourselves afresh to seeking, as Paul says, what is good and pure and beautiful and wise. Lord, we want to do that. Will you be with us and help us to encourage each other to do that well? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.